Mino Lion Media presents Pregnancy Pearls. Meet Dr. Nicole Plenty, a double board certified OBGYN and high risk pregnancy expert. She's brilliant, well researched, and feisty. Growing tired of seeing complications of pregnancy that could have been prevented, she wanted a way to empower women through knowledge because, as she says, all doctors aren't created equal. This quest to educate women birthed this podcast, Pregnancy Pearls, with Dr. Plenty. Thanks for listening to Pregnancy Pearls Podcast with me, Dr. Nicole Plenty. Happy Black History Month and Heart Health Month, my friends. What do you have planned for Valentine's Day? Because, you know, that's this month, too. Now, if you're listening to this episode as soon as it drops Thursday, then you still have some time to get your stuff together. So don't say you weren't warned. I have been warning y'all for the last few episodes. And even if you're a woman... Make sure you do something special for your honey. I know we think this is our holiday, but let's not do that this year. Let's surprise that special someone and be a little bit more romantic in 2023. All right. So this week I've had quite a few questions about diabetes. So I thought we should talk about diabetic screening during pregnancy. So since we're talking about diabetic screening, this means that we're talking about gestational diabetes, not pre-existing diabetes. I'm almost certain that I've done a diabetes in pregnancy or pre-existing diabetic episode, first couple episodes of season one. So I have to check which episode, but go check out that one. And I know I've done a YouTube video about it too. So go and check that out as well. Now, gestational diabetes means that you're diagnosed with diabetes during pregnancy that was not pre-existing. So every year, 2 to 10% of pregnancies in the United States are affected by gestational diabetes. And this happens when hormones from the placenta or insulin-like hormones make a woman's cells resistant to insulin. That means more and more insulin is needed to drive blood sugar into your cells. Gestational diabetes can also start when the mother's body is not able to make and use all the insulin it needs for pregnancy. And without enough insulin, whether that you have a whole bunch and your body's not sensitive to it or you're just not making enough, glucose can't leave the blood and be changed into energy for the cells. When glucose builds up in the blood, it's called hyperglycemia or high blood sugars. Okay. When it builds up in the blood, hyperglycemia. Okay. And some for some people that, that some people that's confusing. They're like, well, so it's not in the cells, but it's hyperglycemia because it's in the blood. It's in the cells because it's used as energy. But when it's outside of the cells and in the blood, that's when you have high blood sugar. Just to unconfuse that, okay? Now we usually test those who have risk factors for gestational diabetes with a one-hour, fifty-gram glucose load screening test in the first trimester. So as soon as you get pregnant, okay? Risk factors include if you're obese. If you've had a history of gestational diabetes in a previous pregnancy, if you have multiple family members that have early onset diabetes, if you have PCOS, all of these things, if you have thyroid disease, all of these things are risk factors for getting uh, having pre-existing diabetes. So you'll be screened early in the pregnancy to make sure you don't have any underlying insulin resistance, okay? Otherwise, you're screened at 26 to 30 weeks, okay? So if you're screened early in the pregnancy, you pass it. The next time you'll be screened is 26 to 30 weeks with everybody else, okay? And they use that same 50-gram glucose load to screen you with. Now, values over 140 milligrams per deciliter require further screening with the three-hour glucose tolerance test. Now, some people early in pregnancy 
may do a hemoglobin A1C, right? Because in the first trimester, you're screening for pre-existing insulin resistance, um, which means that you have pre-existing diabetes. And so they'll do an A1C. If your A1C is over 5.7%, then they'll be like, okay, well, maybe you do have some underlying insulin resistance. The over 6%, then they'll be like, okay, we're treating you as a type 2 diabetic. Now, the American College of OBGYNs still recommends not just an A1C, but an actual glucola screening, right? Because you can still have somebody's A1C that's that's normal and they still fail their diabetic screen, okay? So ACOG still recommends the one-hour glucose challenge test. Now, if you fail your one hour with a value over 140, then you'll have to do a three-hour glucose challenge test. Now, the three-hour glucose tolerance test, you should be fasting. For the one hour, you didn't have to be fasting, right? For the three hour, you should be fasting and you're going to be given a hundred gram glucose load for screening. And the values they're going to check are fasting. Then at one hour after you drink the, the drink, two hours after you drink the drink and three hours. Yes, the drink is a little bit thicker than the one hour because it's the same volume, but it's twice the glucose load. Usually you have a choice of the red drink, the orange drink, or some people have like a yellow drink. Now, the orange drink to me tastes like tang. So I always tell people to drink that. I've heard the berry is good too. That's the red. But I always, I like tang. So that's one I usually tell people to get. Fasting, meaning right before you drink it, it should be, your value should be 95 milligrams per deciliter or less. An hour after you finish your your load, it should be 180 milligrams per deciliter or less. Two hours, it should be less than 155. Three hours, it should be less than 150 excuse me, three hours less than 140, sorry, 140. Now, these are the carpenter Kustan values and you can find them listed on perinatology.com or if you Google three-hour diabetic screening pregnancy, you will get that um, carpenter Kustan values. Now, there is an American Diabetes Association values that are a little bit looser, meaning the fasting has to be less than 105 the one hour, I believe, is less than 195. So it's a little bit of looser criteria, but most people use the carpenter Kustan values. Now, for those who are pregnant, because your blood glucose can readily cross the placenta, it's important to keep tight control of your blood sugar. So if you have gestational diabetes, your doctor is going to tell you to check your finger stick fasting, meaning first thing we wake up, and then two hours after breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You do not have to check it after snacks, but you should not eat a snack before you check your blood sugar. And people do that. Don't don't do that. That's going to drive your blood sugar up. Gonna make us think it's higher than it is, and you're not controlled. When that's just not the case. Before your meals are fasting, 95 milligrams per deciliter less fasting. First thing we wake up, and if you're checking two hours after meals, it should be less than 120. Some people would prefer to check one hour after they eat, just to give them basically more time between their meals. Okay, if you're checking it one hour after your meal, it should be 140 milligrams per deciliter or less what your finger stick should be. Now, some people can achieve this with just diet and exercise alone. And I usually uh, have patients eat 30 to 45 grams of carbohydrates with breakfast, 45 to 60 grams of carbs with lunch and dinner, and then 15 to 20 grams with snacks between meals. And like I said, you don't have to eat, uh, check your finger sticks after meals. I mean, after uh, your snacks. Actually, we prefer you not to check it after snacks. That confuses us. So only check it fasting and either one or two hours after breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Now, if you're not a big carb counter, like most of us aren't, 
then you can try the plate diet. So if you're like, I don't really want to read nutrition packages or I cook a lot and I, you know, I'm not sure how much of all the ingredients is in this pot, then you can do the carb diet. Okay. I mean the uh, plate diet. Now with the plate diet, if you have a normal size round plate, half of your plate should be veggies, half. Okay. And I'm not talking about greens with the ham hocks in it, y'all. Okay. You can eat greens, but you can't put all the ham hocks in it. No, about just veggies, kale, a salad, some type of veggies, Brussels sprouts, half of your plate should be veggies. A fourth of your plate should be protein, chicken, fish, shrimp, and none of the protein can be fried. No fried proteins. Okay. No fried meat. And then a fourth of your plate is carbs. And I always tell people, whatever is white, turn to brown. So if you're eating white potatoes, the equivalent of a brown potato is a sweet potato. Yes, sweet potatoes have less carbs than white potatoes. If you're doing um, pasta for some reason, if you a pasta pasta freak, then instead of white pasta, you can do whole wheat pasta. If you have any type of bread, remember it still has to fit only that fourth of plate. Instead of you know white bread, you're going to do whole wheat whole grain bread. Okay. So substitute anything that's white to brown. Instead of white rice, you're going to do brown rice. All right. Make healthy choices for your carbs. Okay. And nothing fried. The other thing you have to realize is you got to pay attention to the sauces. Barbecue sauce, ketchup, they have a lot of sugar. And so they're high in carb. Okay. Mayonnaise is high in fat, not high in carb. All right. So pay attention. Read the back of the bottles. Um, of the sauces that you have. You can also download like myfitnesspal.com. It's, you know, there's a free version of that and it can tell you the breakdown of the, the foods that the nutrition facts of the foods that you eat commonly. So that's another option um, for you, but just pay attention to that. And I also have people, you know, keep a food journal, especially if your finger sticks are higher. So you know what you can eat and what you cannot eat. There are some people that can eat pizza and their finger stick after they eat is 110. Well, that's great. But there's some people that's eating a salad and their finger sticks are higher. Everybody's body is different in terms of the amount of resistance you have. Our goal is to make sure that whatever you eat, that amount of glucose that the baby is seeing a couple of hours later is not higher than 120. We don't want babies to become metabolically exhausted and then bad things happen like a stillbirth. Okay, So we don't want that to happen. But the glute receptors which are receptors on the placenta that glucose come across or pass through. They just allow glucose to just, you know, just pass on by. Okay. So they're they're not making it hard for glucose to get by. The placenta is working overtime, allowing all this glucose to go by. We don't want that to happen. So we want to make sure that the glucose load that the baby is facing is low enough for its little pancreas to handle. If diet alone doesn't get it, then you should be started on medication to help control your diabetes. Insulin does not cross the placenta, okay? So it's considered the recommended treatment. So the goal of insulin is to get your blood sugar down before the blood sugar crosses the placenta. The baby makes its own insulin to metabolize the blood sugar that does cross the placenta, okay? So the baby's insulin stays with the baby, Your insulin, even the exogenous insulin, meaning the insulin you give yourself, stays with you. It does not cross over to the baby. So as an alternative for those that almost have control, but your blood sugar is just above gold, instead of insulin, you can give yourself metformin. 
Now, metformin can cross the placenta in small amounts, okay? But it's not the concentration that's in your body. So let's say you delivered, your blood sugar was 200. The cord is clamped. The cord is clamped. The baby stops making its own insulin because insulin's half-life is very short. It's only like two minutes. And if it no longer has access to blood sugar, the body will naturally stop producing insulin. But metformin's still hanging around. And the half-life of metformin is five to eight hours. So guess what happens? The baby's blood sugar drops. And then you have neonatal hypoglycemia or a baby that has very low blood sugar. Now, babies that have low blood sugar are at risk for uh, going into little comas. They're at risk for seizures. So that's why in all diabetics, the pediatricians will do a finger stick on the baby pretty much immediately to make sure that we don't have a neonatal hypoglycemia that needs to be treated or just aka low blood sugar in the baby. Now, because this is caused by the placenta, once the placenta is delivered, then the insulin resistance for many just goes away, okay? Because it's not anything you did. It's the placenta, okay? However, for some, they will develop underlying insulin resistance and eventually diabetes. So screening with a two-hour glucose tolerance test, which is a 75-gram glucose load, at the six-week postpartum visit is needed, okay? Everybody that has gestational diabetes gets that two-hour glucose tolerance test. If you had gestational diabetes and you were not screened at your six-week postpartum test, shame on your OBGYN. Either you didn't come to your visit or they just forgot to do this test, but everybody needs it that had gestational diabetes. Now, if you fail this, then you'll be referred to a nutritionist and likely an endocrinologist for tight glycemic control and early management to prevent long-term complications of diabetes. So the key for diabetes is to treat early, control as early as possible, because long-term diabetes, if you go undiagnosed for a long period of time, that's how people end up with other issues, vascular damage, heart attack, glaucoma, you know, gangrene. We don't want any of these things to happen. So knowing is half the battle, okay? So they'll screen you if you have underlying insulin resistance or you fail it, then it's time for some early intervention. And actually people that have gestational diabetes should start to be screened annually starting one to three years after they delivered that baby with gestational diabetes, okay? Because it is a 50% lifetime risk of type two diabetes if you get gestational diabetes. Not saying that to be negative, Nancy, it just is what it is, right? You have to focus on risk reduction if you have gestational diabetes in the pregnancy, meaning we need to alter our lifestyle, make sure we're eating a, a, a low carb diet. We need to incorporate some exercise in our lives after we have the baby. Nothing strenuous, just, you know, 30 minutes of aerobic exercise and making healthier choices about the types of foods that we choose. Okay. I know I'm I, I not trying to be Debbie Downer, but I do want us to be conscious of what our risks are and take steps to be the healthiest versions of ourselves that we can possibly be. All right. So now that you know a little bit more about diabetic screening, let's go to some cases. Our first case is a 35 year old who is 31 weeks pregnant with her fourth child. She failed her diabetic screen three weeks ago and has been managed with diet alone. However, her fasting values are consistently between 100 and 110. She refuses to start any medication because she's afraid it will hurt her baby. She would rather have further nutritional education instead. She was referred to you for further management. For me, I always start with nutritional 
education, even if somebody says, oh, my OBGYN always talk, uh, already talked to me about it, or I was referred to endocrinology and they talked to me about it. I always act as if the person hasn't had any education at all. And you'd be surprised about what people have been told or what they've retained from the conversation. So I always go back through and talk to them about all the stuff we just mentioned. These are your goals. This is the plate diet. These are the amount of carbs that you should be eating. These are healthy choices that you should be making. And I always ask the patient, what is it that you eat on a day-to-day basis? And what is it that you feel like you cannot go without, right? And then we sit there and we think of healthier options for that. So for example, I had a patient that said, I cannot go without pizza. I have to eat pizza. I love pizza. And then we said, hey, are there some restaurants that make pizza that have a cauliflower crust or a low carb option, right? And we went and found like, hey, Mellow Mushroom has this cauliflower crust pizza, right? Or if you go to the grocery store, there are pizzas that have cauliflower crust. There are four grams of carbs in the whole little mini pizza. So we sit and we think of other options for those must-have things. And then you realize that, hey, I don't have to eat this. There are alternatives for me to eat. Then the other thing that I usually do is say, let's set some goals and some rewards, right? I'm a realist. If you go all week eating what you're supposed to eat, let's have a splurge, you know, a splurge day or a splurge meal week. You can splurge, you can eat brownies and fried chicken Friday for your dinner, okay? Now you can't cheat the whole day, okay? But Friday for your dinner, you can. But that means that everything else for the rest of that week was perfect. So I give people like a reward meal if they've been compliant for, you know, one or two weeks, okay? Um, Depending on what's going on with the baby. So that is what I would do. But let's say you're following a diabetic diet, you're doing 30 minutes of exercise or, you know, walking 30 minutes a day, four to five days a week as we need you to. Um, You're drinking water, so you're not drinking your carbs and your fastings are still 100 to 110. There's a couple of reasons that this could happen. One, people that are so compliant that they're trying to skip their bedtime snack because they're like, I don't want to eat and go to sleep. I see that all the time. If you're eating breakfast, a snack, lunch, a snack, and then dinner, and you skip that bedtime snack, sometimes, depending on the time you eat your dinner, your body is starving. So let's say you eat dinner at 630. So you mean to tell me you will go and you wake up at seven and check your fingers? You've been starving for over 12 hours. Okay, so your body is going to start breaking down its own glucose stores and it's going to make your blood sugar higher because you're releasing is releasing more glucose into the bloodstream so that the cells can try to uptake that. Okay, so not eating enough can also drive your blood sugar up just because your body is breaking down stores. Okay. The first thing I would, after the nutrition counseling, I would say, tell me what you're eating for your bedtime snack. Either it's too high in carb or you're not eating at all. And if you're eating a bedtime snack, you're eating everything you're supposed to be eating, then it's time to incorporate some medicine. I know people say they refuse, but once you tell somebody, hey, your baby could die, they no longer refuse, right? Your baby, you know, babies have an increased risk of stillbirth with diabetics, as low as a fasting of 100. And fasting is the most important because that shows us what what your baby is reaching over a very long period of time, okay, eight hours. So we don't want you to 
be this person that has these fastings that are right above normal. And then you end up, you know, 37, 38 weeks with a stillbirth. That's happened. I've seen it happen. I've been consulted on people after that's happened. And it is a a horrible conversation to have, right? Because I know that that is a definite cause of stillbirth. And it's something that can be prevented if we have good glycemic control. Okay. So I would have a come to Jesus and say, listen, this is a very temporary period of your life. You 31 weeks, you have eight weeks at most. Okay. That's if we get you super control with insulin, eight weeks at most to take insulin or metformin. Okay. And at hundred to 110, you could try a trial of metformin. You can do metformin at nighttime that affects your fasting, but you got to do something. Okay. Because hundred to 110, it would, it would be an injustice. Okay, to allow you to stay uncontrolled like that, knowing that you have a high risk for a poor outcome. So for me, you have no choice. So after I say this is these are the risks, I recommend we either start metformin or insulin. If you don't want to start any of that, then I'm documenting you're okay with a stillbirth. Because as physicians, I know y'all think we don't care, but we care. Okay, we lose babies. We don't sleep at night. And I know it's not the same as a mother losing a baby because I know that's a devastating thing to, you know, to feel. But when we have people that are non-compliant and then they have a loss, it's devastating for us too. Okay. So I would be like, okay, you have to sign this to, to tell me that you're not going to take the recommended insulin because after you do diet and exercise, You could be doing all the right things. Some people think, oh, I'm not controlled. It means I'm not doing the right thing. Insulin resistance because of placenta is a real thing. This is not like diabetes outside of pregnancy. This is in pregnancy. This is the placenta. You can't control the hormones from the placenta. You cannot outwork diabetes in pregnancy. So sometimes you may need a little bit of help to control you. That's not your fault, mama. That is not your fault. So just realize that this is a temporary phase of your life. And you may need a little extra help and that's okay. But I would definitely, if you, if you refuse, I'm documenting you refuse. I'm telling you, I'm documenting you refuse because I, you know, diabetes, I'm a stickler about it because I do not like stillbirths. So I know I went on a soapbox with that one, but the case pearl for this case is tight glycemic control is essential to avoid a stillbirth. Insulin is considered first line treatment for diabetes and pregnancy. All right, medical intern, what's our second case? Our second case is a 22-year-old who is 29 weeks pregnant with her first child. She had a one-hour glucola with a value of 205 milligrams per deciliter. So her OBGYN told her to start checking her finger sticks both fasting and two hours after meals. However, the patient states that she does not think that she has gestational diabetes and does not want to start being treated like a diabetic. She states that she had a large Slurpee right before her visit, which is why her value was so high. She was referred to you for a second opinion. Y'all better leave these Slurpees alone. Y'all better leave these Slurpees alone. You know, you don't have to be fasting with your one hour, but I always tell my patients, don't eat bad either. Like the, the day before, you should be eating light. Like you should be eating a grilled chicken salad or something. Like you should be eating light. You don't want in the back of your head to think, is it something I ate or my diet that caused me not to pass my one hour? And nine times out of 10, it's not. But I always tell people to eat light. 
Now, if you drank a Slurpee right before you drank a glucose load, then obviously it's almost like you're giving yourself instead of a 50 gram glucose load, you gave yourself a hundred gram glucose load. So of course it's going to be a little higher, right? Some of this is owing to the fact that you felt like you could eat a sugar load, drink a sugar load right before you did another sugar load. But your OBGYN is, you know, she's right. You know, if you um, failed your glucose screen, then you need to start checking your finger sticks depending on how high it is, depending on what your value is. I'm sorry, you should not have drank the Slurpee. Um, The alternative could be that you ask to be retested, right? You could do a three-hour glucose test, even though if a value over 200 is usually diagnostic. But if you feel like, hey, I just drank a Slurpee, then the alternative is, hey, let's make you do a fasting three-hour glucose challenge test. Okay, that's what I would do. And if you pass that, then you don't have diabetes and we know it's because you're Slurpee. But if you failed it, then you'd be treated as a diabetic, okay? Yes, you do have to go through the heartache of another three-hour glucose tolerance test. No, I would not have you do another one-hour glucose load. I I wouldn't because you've already failed that. And if you fail it again, then it's wasting my time and you got to come back for a three-hour anyway. So I would start right with the three-hour because you failed the one-hour, okay? And with a value of 205, I mean, you way failed it, all right? Three-hour glucose tolerance test is what I would recommend doing next. And I would just stay away from the Slurpees altogether. Like even outside of pregnancy, just stay away from the Slurpees. Let that be some like splurge thing you do when you go on your girl's trips. Okay, but not every day, not every day. Even if you're not diabetic, not every day. So I would say the next thing is a three a fasting three-hour glucose tolerance test, okay? But because of this, the case pearl, when I have to drive home, is a value over 200 is diagnostic of gestational diabetes and does not require a three-hour glucose tolerance test. So your OBGYN technically is right, but if you felt like you cheated yourself, then yeah, I will go ahead with the three-hour. All right, medical intern, what's our email question for today? This one says, Dr. Plenty, I'm 14 weeks pregnant. My OBGYN said that since I had insulin-dependent gestational diabetes with my last pregnancy, that I should be treated for diabetes this pregnancy as well. I asked if I should take a glucola test to make sure, but she told me that even if I passed it since I'm obese and required insulin last time, I would still have to check my finger sticks this pregnancy. So I don't need to be tested. Is that true? Well, maybe your OBGYN isn't telling you the whole thing. So like, let's say they did an early A1C and your A1C was like over 6% then that would be true. It wouldn't matter what it is. I would treat you as a diabetic because your A1C is in a diabetic range, right? So if they did that and they saw that your A1C was in a diabetic range, then they're right. Like even if you passed your glucola, then you would still have to pan on yourself, okay? But if they didn't do that and they're just assuming you're gonna get diabetes and that would be wrong. I mean, you would need an early glucola to see if you actually have underlying insulin resistance. And if you did not, then they should test you again somewhere between 26 and 20, uh, 26 and 30 weeks to see if you have gestational diabetes. So that is absolutely wrong unless there's some other indicator. Okay. Meaning you've been tested between pregnancies and you have known diabetes. You have an A1C at the beginning of pregnancy. That's over 6%. Otherwise, 
they would need to go through the proper channels and test you with the one hour. You fail the one hour, then they do the three hour. If you pass the three hour, um, then you would do the screen between 26 and 30 weeks. If you pass the early one hour, then they would not do the three hour. And then they would just wait and do the one hour again between 26 and 30 weeks. So just because you have diabetes and you're obese does not mean that you're going to be diabetic with each pregnancy. You know, there are plenty of people that had diabetes with their first pregnancy and didn't have diabetes with any other other pregnancies. Okay, so that's silly. So I would ask, hey, why are you saying this? Like, is my what was my A1C? Or is there something that showed you that I'm a diabetic? Like perhaps they did a a complete metabolic profile, which is a panel that we look at your liver, your uh, liver enzymes and your your kidney function and your electrolytes. If they did that and your glucose level was like greater than 400 or something, that may be a clue for them that you have resistance. So I would ask, hey, what's what's making you say this? Like, did you test something and you saw a whole bunch of glucose in my urine or did you test my A1C and it was, you know, high? Like, why are you assuming that I have diabetes this pregnancy? So I would ask them specific questions as to why. And if not, then I would ask them, hey, can I be formally tested before I start paneling myself because that diabetic stuff is not cheap. And most of the time for your insurance to cover that, they need a diagnosis on the chart. So they can't just have you paying out of pocket for this stuff. So I would definitely ask, hey, what is making you say this? Because there there has to be a bit of information you're missing because I don't know any doctor that wants to assume somebody is a diabetic. Like managing and treating diabetes is very tedious. It's a lot to keep up with. So there has to be a reason that she's saying this, so or he's saying this. So just make sure you're asking questions and get specific details as to what is making them think that you have diabetes with this particular pregnancy. All right, medical intern, I think that's all the cases and questions. And she's shaking her head, yes. So thank you guys so much for listening to Pregnancy Pearls Podcast. I hope you've learned a little bit more about diabetic screening in pregnancy. And if you like what you've learned, please support by rating and commenting on the show on whatever platform you listen to and share with your friends. If you or someone you know has had a pregnancy complication or unique pregnancy situation, let me know about it. Email me at pregnancypearls at gmail.com to hear your topic or case discussed on one of our podcast episodes. Also, remember to follow me on Instagram at pregnancy underscore pearls and Facebook at pregnancy pearls. And don't forget to catch up on the YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash pregnancy pearls with Dr. Plenty for more quick talks about pregnancy complications. In closing, remember to advocate for yourself. You are your biggest advocate and no one knows what's going on with your body except for you. Thanks for listening. Bye. Pregnancy Pearls is hosted by Dr. Nicole Lee Plenty. Produced by Nicole Plenty and Janine Brunson Johnson. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find Pregnancy Pearls on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and rate. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice for diagnosis or treatment of individual medical conditions. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with specific questions regarding a medical condition. Pregnancy Pearls is a mean old Lion Media Production.